Hi, everyone. Before we get started, we would like to ask a favor. Please leave a five-star review and a like on whatever platform you're using to listen to Planet Fear. It's a small thing that helps us so much. Also, don't forget to follow or subscribe because we release a new episode of Planet Fear every week. Warning. Some of the subjects we discuss may be too intense or graphic for some audiences. The world is a fearful place. We are surrounded by people and things that would do us harm. Some walk among us every day, while others lurk in the shadows, a threat unknown. Join us as we discuss all of the things that frighten us most, from the paranormal and unknown, to the true and horrific crimes committed by our very own kind, with Matt Knapp and Lauren Smith on Planet Fear. On past shows, we've talked about how bad things happening in your area just seem so much worse Mm -hmm. than when you read about it in other states or whatever. We have something really, you know, we've had a lot of bad things happen in Oklahoma. We've had the Oklahoma City bombings. We've had various murders and such, but we've housed a lot of outlaws in, in the day. But one of the really god-awful tragedies that's happened in Oklahoma actually isn't that well-known. Not as much as you think it would be. Mm -hmm. It was covered in its day. It was covered and it it surfaces every now and then. Mm -hmm. But it it really isn't as well-known as you would think it would be. And that would be the 1977... Girl Scout murders at Camp Scott, Oklahoma. Scary stuff. Made scarier by the fact that you, Matthew, grew up right next to that camp. Yeah. So whenever I was a kid, about four years old, maybe five, uh, my grandparents bought some lake property that was very near uh, Camp Scott. And that's where I would spend... Literally (laughs) every single weekend during the school year, summers, spring break, winter break, the vast, at least 90% of the time that I was out of school was spent Mm -hmm. in this area of Oklahoma. And then later on, uh, whenever I got older and graduated high school, I ended up with a girlfriend that was from the area. So I was constantly out there for like four years, Uh, had quite a few friends out there, and my aunt and uncle lived in Tahlequah, which was just right down the highway, basically, from this area. And we just spent a lot of time in those towns and in that general area. You, You said that this particular camp, that you've driven that road by the camp countless times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when did you first hear about these? Because those murders happened the year you were born. Not to call you out on your on your right. advanced age, um, but when did you first hear about As a kid? This? Yeah. As a very young kid. Yeah. My uncle was a judge. Uh, he wasn't directly involved with the case, but I, I guess you would say he was consulted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was involved. The, uh a lot of stuff happened in the neighboring county and everything. 
he had jurisdiction of that area, so he was just involved with some of the investigation whenever it would trickle over to his county, so he had access to all the information and everything as it was happening. But the main crime itself took place in Mays County, uh, where you have basically centered around the town of Pryor, which isn't where the crime happened, but that's where the sheriff's department was and everything. Yes. Which was also the same sheriff's department that had juris- jurisdiction where our lake house was. Our lake house sat maybe 20 minutes outside of Pryor. You were very, very young, but thinking about it now and after, especially after uh, weeks, we've been researching this one for weeks. Yeah. Because it's a it's a lengthy one. It hits close to home for you. And for me. You know, during my research, you know, I didn't grow up in this part of Oklahoma. I grew up in southwest Oklahoma. But, you know, as we'll get into it later, the main suspect in the crime worked at the prison that I lived very close to. Yeah. For years. And it, that just... And also committed crimes in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. You know, (laughs) you know, and and they mention it's just it's one of those things like when you're listening to the documentary or you're reading the articles and all these names in there. And I'm like, I've been to every single one of those Mm -hmm. places. You know, this is right near here. It's it's just eerie. Very eerie. So 1977, it's June. Camp counselors are gearing up to have a bunch of Girl Scouts come do a camp out. It's going to be a two-week campout. So before the girls even got there, the counselors were there and just, you know, getting things ready. And they had bought a box of donuts. Box of donuts. <laughs> Something as harmless as a box of donuts. Uh-huh. So they went to grab the box of donuts and realized that it was mostly empty. And so they opened it up, found out some donuts were missing that they didn't eat. And in their place was a note. Did it say they? So, this would be a good time to bring up the disclaimer. <laughs> yes, that is a good point. That this did take place in 1977. Mm-hmm. And whenever it comes to details, there are a lot of conflicting stories. They are very. This one in particular. Mm-hmm. I've read a couple different things about what the note said. The one that seemed to make the most sense or the one that seemed the most legit... Uh, to me was that the tent area where the donuts were was ransacked and stuff was kind of thrown all over the place. Mm -hmm. And inside the box of donuts was several small steno pad pieces of notebook paper. Mm -hmm. And that on several of the pieces of paper, the word kill was written over and over. Yes. And then on the last piece of paper, uh, it said, basically, we're on a mission to kill three girls. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I've also read, we're on a mission to kill girls. We're going to kill three girls. Mm -hmm. We're going to kill three girls in tent number one. So that's the kind of conflicts that you have. Yes, there are a lot of conflicts between all the information that we pulled. There's a lot of consistencies, too. Mm -hmm. This one, what I read and what I heard in several documentaries was they found the note and it said, kill, kill, kill. And mm-hmm. then it said, we are on a mission to kill three girls. And then 
it was said that the counselors just thought it was a prank because it mentioned Martians. Hmm. And so they just claimed it as a prank and threw it away. They just didn't think anything about it. Now, the word we stands out to me mm-hmm. for reasons that we'll get to. Yes. So I also read the same thing that pretty much everybody said that they thought it was a prank, so they just threw it away. Then one article said that some girls actually admitted to writing the notes, and that's why they threw them away. But there shouldn't have been any girls at the camp Mm-mm. at that time other than the counselors. Yeah. And from the description, like I said, the tent was ransacked and stuff was thrown all over the place. Things so, missing. I, yeah, things missing. So, again, this doesn't sound like a prank to me. No. And then I also read, <laughs> we're going to be all over the place with this because there's just so much stuff. There's so much data. and. They also found an effigy of a man hanging by his neck in a tree with his genitals exposed (laughs) yeah so there's that with the note now i don't think these were like at the same time or anything yeah but this is all before the campers got there and all this started now i only found that uh one place Mm -hmm. so is it true i don't know but it sounded really creepy yeah some blair witch (laughs) stuff except like Lorena Bobbitt Blair Witch. So there was that note. So then you have all these girls showing up. So they drive the beautiful scenic route to the camp. Mm -hmm. They turn onto Cookie Trail Road, which is named for the infamous Girl Scout cookies. They go down and then all the cabins are named after Native American tribes. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, all the different cabins. The one in that will feature most prominently in the story was the Kiowa. Now, the Kiowa cabin, or tent, I'm sorry, they're tents, not cabins. It was set a little bit away from the others. And there were three girls in this tent. There were supposed to be four girls, but yeah. due to a clerical error, one of them got put in the wrong tent, and due to a thunderstorm that happened that evening... She was not able to switch until the next day. However, there would be no next day. Now, just to give you an idea of the surroundings. So, the camp sat on like 410 acres of forest. And this is like steep, rugged hill country forest. You could not see the campsites or anything from the road. Like, this place does not look like a place where they would let... Little girls go stay the night. Mm-hmm. This looks like a place where people would go look for Bigfoot. <laughs> That's, I almost <laughs> said that. <laughs> I mean, it does. And like I remember uh, you asked, you know, when I first heard about it, it was driving down that highway. I remember either my uncle or my grandfather said, over there's where all those little girls got killed. And I was like, you know, little curious kid, what are you talking about? And yeah. that's. You know, there was a Girl Scout camp over there where some girls got killed. Jeez. Like I said, it, you wouldn't know it's there. Right. Extremely remote. Completely wooded. Other than they stuck this Girl Scout camp yeah. out in the woods for some reason. And it had been there operating for like 50 years. So you have these Girl Scouts. You have the camp counselors. And these Girl Scouts are showing up. 
and uh, they're assigned to all their tents and stuff, and then this thunderstorm hits, right? So they're stuck inside their tent, and they're bored. So they decide to write letters back home. One of them writes a letter that says, I don't like it here. I don't want to stay the two weeks. I miss you guys, and I want to come home. I don't like it here. I mean, can you imagine, though? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that stands out that is repeated over and over is how dark this place was at right. night because they didn't have lights or anything mm -hmm. strung up. Yeah. You're out in the middle of the woods. It's Oklahoma, June. So it's muggy and miserable. Now you have this storm rolling. Mm -hmm. June thunderstorms in Oklahoma isn't just a light rain. Yeah. It would have been terrifying and to it was, be out I mean, there. It was a thunderstorm yeah. i have been out in a tent during a thunderstorm it was the single most terrifying event yeah. of my life you are out in the element it was i'm not kidding i was terrified i was shaking on my cot as a 30 year old woman much less an eight-year-old girl yeah. and these girls had just got there and their camp counselors are not in the tent with them no no it's three little girls in a tent and the tents are like a wooden platform raised off the ground with a large canvas tent that holds mm -hmm. three or four cots. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you're just open and exposed. Like, there's yeah. just a tent flap. I I can't... It just blows my mind. I, I can't believe it. It's insane. And, you know, so there had been weird things happening. Um, one of the camp counselors, before all the girls got there, she had gone for a run. And... You know, she's, it's just, it, this is repeated in here that she saw something weird mm -hmm. or heard something weird. And this is just over and over that this happens. But this particular counselor, she had that, per that night of the thunderstorm, she had seen a dim light. Mm -hmm. And so she went towards it and stopped and turned off her flashlight and waited and it went away. Now she didn't like go investigate it. You know, someone, a dim light in the woods around an all-girls camp. You know, she didn't go investigate it. Nope. She was like, mm, okay, well, I'm going to go back to bed. Well, supposedly during orientation, and I know that this happened because this was an actual court document that I found online. One of the counselors, during orientation, something happened. They twisted an ankle or got too hot or something, and they, they went and laid down mm -hmm. and, like... A counselor cabin or something. She said that she heard somebody brush against the screen and she said hello, thinking it was like somebody in camp coming to check on her or whatever. And she heard what she said sounded like a person walking off into the woods. And that had just happened during orientation. Mm -hmm. And then you have all of this where the counselor that night is woken up by animal-like guttural sounds. Guttural noises. She said it was like not, it, it was animal-like, mm -hmm. but guttural noises. She said not like somebody saying ouch, or not somebody going ouch, but somebody in pain almost. The way she described it was really weird. Yeah. And she said... And she would, like, shine her flashlight and the noises would stop. And she went to investigate and they stopped. And mm -hmm. the the weird light. How did they describe the light in your research? Because in my research, they just referred to it as a strange light. They never said, like, it looked like a flashlight. So it was just mine, always, like, strange. 
Yeah, so in my research, it was a dimmed light. Um, she said it was just a really dim flashlight type thing. She said that's why she was so weirded out by it. It's like, if you're out there in the dark, you know, it wasn't like a dying flashlight. Mm -hmm. It was a dimmed flashlight, which later on they did find that flashlight and it had something over it, which dimmed down the light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was a dimmed flashlight, exactly used for sneaking about in the woods where you can see where you're going, but no one else can see your light except they could. And then, so she hears these guttural noises. And this, she had heard that before this night. Mm-hmm. And then the thunderstorm. And then the, that night of the thunderstorm, it wasn't just her. Like, there mm-hmm. were several people that heard yes. the sounds. And not only did they hear the guttural noises, they heard a little girl crying for her mommy. And, I mean, she was crying. So... That's disturbing if you attribute to what that could have been. Yeah. So the counselor said she raised her head when she heard the guttural moaning or whatever. She was. She even turned to the other counselor in her tent and said, hey, do you hear that? What is that? They couldn't figure it out, so they went back to sleep. I mean, like all good camp counselors do during a thunderstorm, first you know. night of camp with little girls. You know. Then she said she was woke up again when she heard the little girl crying out for her mommy. And then she went back to sleep. Now, it's easy to be frustrated with that camp counselor because I feel like their main job is to comfort these little girls. Right. And but how many times have they heard little girls crying for their mommy the first night of camp? I mean, but still, you would think it's the first night of camp. I'm going to go over there and just say, hey, it's okay. You know, go back to sleep, whatever. The mother in me wants to do that. But you have to think these are teenage and 20-year-old counselors, you know. Maybe, who knows what was going who on? Who knows? <laughs> you can't. I mean, it's it's easy to blame them for not checking. But you do need to take into account they were also young and scared of the dark and thunderstorms, which one of them mentions. Mm-hmm. She said, I, I berate myself to this day that I was too scared to get up and go investigate that. So they hear the little girl crying for her mommy, and then they don't hear anything else. However, this same night, several of the tents had someone come by, pull back the flap and shine a flashlight inside the tent, and then leave. Now, the girls thought that it was one of the counselors. Right. So they didn't look up. They didn't move. They thought it was the counselors checking on them. You know, during this time, they come to find out later, there were things missing. Prescription glasses were missing from several of the counselor's tents after that thunderstorm. Now, here's where we get to the other stuff that happened during, you know, during all of that. The person with the flashlight walks to the Kiowa tent with the three little girls in it. Three little girls... Eight, nine, and ten. And he pulls back the flap, shines the flashlight around, and at this point, I, th- I believe from the research that I did, he bashed two of the little girls in the tent, in the head, with a weapon, and then led the third little girl off into the woods. I think they were 30 feet away. Is that what it said? 
The body was found 150 feet okay. away. That's right. The tent was 30 feet away from the counselor's tent. Yeah. That's what it's, yeah. Once again, 77. Mm-hmm. So you've got a bunch of conflicting details. You've got, as we talk about this case, you're going to be beating your head against the wall and pulling your hair out because of the way that it was handled. Yeah. I got very, I told Matt, whenever I got over here tonight, I said, I'm already exhausted emotionally just from the research on this, on this one, because it is so damn frustrating. Yeah. Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. you would have handled it different, whatever. But the facts and the evidence of this case were so mishandled, so grossly mishandled. It's just, and especially when it's three little girls who died and it, they have no justice and that is supremely frustrating so he leads this little girl off and all three girls were sexually assaulted um but this little girl her face was so badly beaten that there were imprints of the weapon in her skull and he covered her with her sleeping bag and he went and got the other two little girls he did what he did to the other two little girls in the tent and then carried them like they were in a little sack. So it was around 6 a.m. the following morning. She got up early because she wanted, she set her alarm to get up early because she wanted to get up there and get the hot water yeah. shower before the other counselors woke up. Yeah. Um, so she's on her way to the bathhouse mm-hmm. when she comes upon sleeping bags in the fork along the path. Left there to be found. Left there to be found. Uh, at first, she just thought it was some luggage, some extra stuff that had arrived the previous day. And she kind of started to walk towards them to pick them up. And that's when she saw the body of a little girl lying on the ground with her eyes open. The little girl was naked from the waist down with her legs spread wide, her hands bound behind her back with duct tape. This little girl would be identified as Denise or Doris Milner, age 10. Uh, She looked to have been hit on the head. She had dried blood on her forehead. Uh, The other two bodies were covered by the sleeping bags, which we found out were actually tucked down inside the sleeping bags, um, as if they had been, the sleeping bags had been used to carry them, Mm -hmm. I assume. Uh, And they had been found a short distance, uh, but weren't originally discovered with Denise. At that point in time, if I'm remembering correctly, they went around, they thought, oh my God, something's happened, and they went around and started counting all the girls, Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, it took a while for them to realize these girls are inside these sleeping bags. Yeah, yeah. so they went and did a head count, and then at that point realized that those two other sleeping, or that there were two two other girls missing, and then... One of the counselors went over there and picked up the bag and then felt it and realized there was a body in it. But they wouldn't touch it until the police got there. They were terrified. By 7.30 a.m., law enforcement had arrived and the investigation had begun. According to the reports, the murders were committed between 2 and 5 in the morning. Bodies found 6, 6.30. Law enforcement on the scene. I mean, that's pretty fast. Mm-hmm. 
that's, you know, you would think, okay, come in, shut everything down, tape it all off. Here we are. That was in 77. Mm -hmm. Except they called the parents of all the remaining Girl Scouts and said, there's, you know, something's happened. Uh, Camp is canceled. Come get your kids. They said that cars were lined up along the Cookie Trail Road all the way to the highway and that parents didn't know anything about their daughters until they until that yeah they didn't they until didn't that tell camper the parents why. until that camper got to the car so it was just the three parents that no daughter showed up to their car and that's kind of how that happened now you said that you know police showed up pretty quick well here's what happened the camp I don't even remember what she's called, but basically the the head... Yeah, the camp manager or Yeah, whatever. the head person at the camp. So this happens, right? The police... So the parents, the police, those weren't her first calls. Oh, no. The parents were the fourth call. Police were the third call. That person called her insurance agent first, <laughs> then called her attorney, then called the police... And then called the parents. That was her priorities. And she's the the parents of little uh, Lori Farmer, mm-hmm. the youngest one. They said that she didn't even really tell them. She said there had been an accident and something had happened. And they didn't, she gave this very brief and concise statement that she basically had rehearsed. They, they had had a... Uh, reporter show up at their house and demand a photo of this child and they gave it to him and then they didn't even find out until they turned on the news that their daughter had been how they knew that her their their daughter had died Mm -hmm. when they went to the camp but they didn't find out how she had died until they heard it on the news the camp yeah because they were just trying to push it off as like an accident yeah the camp did not even tell them like hey your daughter entrusted, you know, you entrusted us with her care. Yeah, she was murdered brutally. So as this thing kicks off, this investigation, if that's what you could call it. <laughs> uh, June 14th, the wooden floor of the tent was airlifted to a crime lab. The floor itself was covered in blood. And it appeared that there had been an attempt to wipe it up using towels and mattresses and anything mm-hmm. that was in the tent. Um, a lot of this stuff, pillowcases, things like that, were tucked down in the sleeping bags with the other two girls. The press, here we go. How many times have we ran across this? Mm-hmm. The press publishes information about a shoe print being found outside the tent and a different print being found on the inside. Now, these prints were supposedly both tennis shoes in some reports, in other reports, military-style hiking boots. Uh, one was a size eight, one was a size seven. Then in another report, one was a size 10 and one was a size nine. Yeah. The ones I saw, the bloody boot print was a size nine and a half men's is the feedback I got. And it tied in with a suspect that someone later testified they had, they had seen him and he had reddish tinge on the bottom of his shoes and all this kind of stuff. Oh, we'll get to that guy. Oh yeah. That... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. But but yeah, it, you know, when they do catch their other suspect, he doesn't have a size nine and a half shoe. 
So the press releases this information. I couldn't find any sources as to how they obtained the information, mm-hmm. but somebody gave it to them. Oh, yeah, yeah. The investigators and the Mays County District Attorney were pissed. That information was not supposed to come out. And that kind of started this whole feud between agencies. Oh, Lord. There was a man living in his car seven miles north of the camp that was questioned and then released. There was a rancher from Tulsa that actually owned a ranch nearby who had some items stolen from his ranch right before the murders Mm -hmm. that eventually were tied and connected to the murders themselves, according to some people. (laughs) Yes. What I saw was he had duct tapes uh, found in his possession, the same kind that was Mm -hmm. used, and he said, yeah, some of that was stolen. But he couldn't give a complete account of everything that was stolen. But who would notice duct tape being stolen? I mean, okay, me and my house, I would because I use it a lot. But, like, on a ranch, I have no, I mean. This is also the first time that Gene... Leroy Hart is mentioned as a suspect. Leroy. The documentary I watched, Johnny Cash narrated it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's the only thing that made that documentary bearable. But he he pronounced it Gene Leroy Hart. Gene Leroy. Leroy. It probably is Leroy. But I like Leroy. I like Leroy. It makes him sound all, you know. Oklahoman. It makes him sound like he wears a wife beater and hurts little girls. So no no offense uh, to anybody named Leroy. Yeah. He uh, had escaped from jail four years prior, uh, serving over a 300-year sentence. He had previously been convicted for rape, kidnapping, and burglary. Good guy. So, I would like to touch on his prior offenses. So, Gene Leroy Hart, he went to jail for the rape of two women. Now... In Tulsa. In Tulsa. He kidnapped two pregnant women took them to the to west tulsa to the oil refineries he had one in the trunk and one in the car and he got the one out of the trunk and she she's the one that told this story and she said he raped and sodomized her stole her glasses which were prescription glasses he told her take them off i want to try them on he then did the same to the other pregnant woman He then gagged them, and these are hand-sewn gags, carefully sewn gags, then duct-taped over their face, over their nose, so that was their last source of oxygen. They were bound with nylon rope and duct tape and buried. Now, the woman telling this account said that she was praying and praying, um, and the duct tape popped. And she was able to get some air. And then she was able to get out. And she survived and got the other girl out. He left them there to smother. After he did these awful things to them. To pregnant women. Which, as we discussed, the psychology of it. You know, the the stress on... You're not just hurting one person. You're hurting two lives there. But he left them there to smother. That, to me, that's... Worse than torture, you know? That's similar to what I read, (laughs) but completely different at the same time. This was the lady, like, they had her on there and she tested, like, she did this interview. Obviously, I would take her word for it. I didn't read anything about them being pregnant. 
They were picked up outside of a nightclub at 11th and Del- or Denver, which was like the prime, you know, place to go hang out on the weekends, high society, drink and dance. Was, Completely out of place for Hart to be there. It was happening. Uh, at the Fontendale nightclub. Yeah. He put one in his trunk and made the other sit up front with him. Tried on her glasses. Then he had them switch places. Tried on the other one's glasses. Drove them out past Rogers County to the edge of Mays County, which is the complete opposite direction of the oil refineries in West Tulsa. And drove them out into the middle of the woods and did all that stuff out there. So why? Why did they skew the facts? Maybe they yeah. didn't have her interview, although I'm pretty sure that interview was made in the 80s. Why couldn't they find it? But whatever. Well, I mean, this would have been common stuff. But either way. The guy's bad news. The guy is bad news. So, and if they were pregnant, I mean, that. That bothers me. So he went to jail for this. Mm-hmm. He had a seven-year sentence. The only explanation I could come up with was because they didn't die. And somehow, somebody couldn't prove that he was trying to kill them by taping their mouths and their noses shut. Mm, and burying them. <laughs> and burying them. You know. Now, if they were pregnant, which I obviously believe they were, then those are extra charges. To me, yeah. You know? Now, you would just think. But after two or three years, they let this guy out on parole. Yep. And then what does he do? Starts breaking into houses. <gasps> but the, the burglaries was another thing. So the burglaries, while he was breaking into places and stealing stuff, also seemed very Night Stalker-ish. Mm-hmm. Like this was more of like, he's looking for more women to rape. Mm-hmm. And the only reason he got caught is because he happened to break into the apartment of a Tulsa police officer. <laughs> Richard Ramirez is rolling over in his grave. Yeah. <laughs> so then he's thrown in prison for that. The judge throws the book at him. We're going to give you over 300 years. Oh, because... you, you broke into this this apartment and, and oh, you, you go into jail for the rest of your life, but you raped these women and traumatized them none and their babies this... forever. But, you know, right. seven so years. So none of this makes any sense to me. <sighs> I get frustrated about gets, rape cases. He gets paroled after a couple of years on a seven-year sentence. That, he should have been gone for life at that point. The justice system is screwed up when it comes to rape. If the person does not die, that person that commits the act does not get the time that they should. To me, when you rape somebody, you basically ended their life. Yeah. As they know it, their life is ended. And I think that it should be life in prison when you rape someone because you have technically ended the, their life as it was. If nothing else, it should be treated as attempted murder. I agree. It, I mean, but just the idea that, I mean, the judge did see, okay, this guy's dangerous. He, you know, we paroled him and he immediately went out and started doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So he did try to lock him up. Try being the yeah. operative word here. But uh, Gene's crafty. He pulled a Ted Bundy. He's crafty. Oh, dear. The uh, Mays County Jail could not hold him. He broke out not once, but twice. (laughs) The first time, using a saw, 
and sawing through the bars. Where did he get the saw? Because well, I'm picturing like a prison pocket situation. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing like... A cake. An old cartoon. Yeah. Like you really sawed through the bars? Like, should that even be possible? But then the second time, I couldn't find out how he got out. They they were just like, well, it was just a strange situation. He just got out. He just walked away. And had been taunting the jail officers about, I'm going to escape. Mm. Like, just letting them know and, like, laughing at them and everything. Making fun of them all the time. So, he was out for four years and finds himself the suspect of killing these three little girls. Now, my question for you... How did he initially become a suspect? I mean, they didn't have anything on him at that point. They didn't know who did it. They just knew that he's a bad guy who escaped prison four years ago in this area of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. He had previously been convicted for rape of adult women, and now he's the main suspect. Now, there are several times that it is alluded to uh, by the FBI, the OSBI, that we've got this major evidence against him. We know he did it. We've got things to connect him to it. After, you know, this all happened, they, the OSBI, set up, you know, their command center, brought in agents to search the area for this perp and they brought in dogs and the dogs eventually found this cave and the cave looked like it had been lived in and they found prescription glasses women's prescription glasses they found a pair of red lacy panties and they found newspaper a newspaper now pieces of the newspaper had been cut out one specific clipping the flashlight that they found with the girls, when they opened up the compartment for the batteries, there was a piece of newspaper in there, all wadded up, that was kind of holding the batteries in place where they didn't rattle, because mm-hmm. old flashlights that like that right. would, to keep contact with the batteries and the you know metal pieces. That piece of newspaper and the flashlight matched the newspaper from that cave. So the dogs weren't just local dogs, though. Yeah, these... they were flown in from Pennsylvania. Yeah. These were like. Highly regarded tracking dogs. These were the cream of the crop tracking dogs. And the guy that that ran these dogs, he told them, I guarantee you my dogs will find this guy because my dogs solved an eight-year-old cold case recently. Yeah. And he was bragging about it. I think at one point in time he even told the press that his dogs had found evidence and that was going to break the case. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I also never found any follow-up as to what that evidence was. Right. There were quite a few times in the documentaries I watched that there was a lot of that going on. A lot of, we've got the guy, or we've got the evidence, this thing's done, and here we are, 2021. So, a couple days after that, Sheriff Pete, (laughs) Pete Weaver, Hayes County... (laughs) announces that a murder weapon, a crowbar, has been found. Here we go. Here we go with everybody competing 
Nobody on the same page. The district attorney and the OSBI don't have any idea what he's talking about. That's good, because I have no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. I never heard any of that. Yeah. So this is the first public instance where you have somebody coming out and saying one thing, and the other investigating organizations are like, we don't know what they're talking about, but we're all supposed to be working together. Mm-hmm. So these tracking dogs that the press or whoever deemed the wonder dogs from Pennsylvania had led them to some ponds on the nearby ranch and nothing was found. Now, it was rumored that a medicine man had cursed the dogs and said that they would die soon after they arrived. What's kind of weird is, on June 18th, one of the dogs dies. They say of heat exhaustion, but people are scratching their heads. Uh, The following day, I think, to kind of build up some credibility in his dogs and what's going on because he just had one of his dogs, you know, die. Expire. Uh, He says, the tracking dog's owner says that the dogs had found some solid evidence and that there would be a break in the case soon. Mm -hmm. None of the law enforcement agencies knew what he was talking about. I found that kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. But he went to the press and said this. Like, how bold of you. Yeah. So at this time, the district attorney, Sid Wise, uh, says that there are no suspects. Sheriff Weaver says there is one suspect, which was Hart. Mm-hmm. And the OSBI says there are three suspects. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then the district attorney goes back and corrects the record that no murder weapon had actually been found, as previously stated by the sheriff. So different reports all over the place. Nobody can get their story straight. Everybody's saying different things. I feel like this is the Moonlight Murders all over again. The following day, June 20th, District Attorney Wise reverses his claims. Now says there are several suspects and lots of evidence, including fingerprints. Then, one of the remaining two Wonder Dogs, for seemingly no reason at all, runs out in front of a truck and gets killed. I think it's time to load up the Wonder Dogs. So while all that's going on, you know, news of this has spread. Yeah. Across the nation. Well, I don't think across the nation. I think in in the at least the immediate south and midwest area, Girl Scouts across this area are terrified. And I actually found a report from somebody in Missouri around this time. Um, they were still camping. But fathers were standing armed guard around the Girl Scout camps wow. during this time because they hadn't caught the guy that did it yet. Which would just terrify the Girl Scouts even more. Well, and then I found another one where a girl, um, <clears throat> she they had gone done a Girl Scout camp and um, they were terrified. They were in their tents terrified because this had happened and they just knew they were next. So the father's standing armed guard, you know, I think that might be a little overkill, but I think, um, I mean, it was a very serious time. They didn't know yeah, where he was. Or if it was, I mean, they would have to just assume that Girl Scouts were being targeted. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything to connect, you know, a reason with this happening. Right. So this is the time where 
officials announced that they had found some photographs. But again, we have conflicts about where the photos were found. Some people said the photos were found near the bodies, which made no sense at all. Mm-mm. And then others say that they were found in a cave about two miles from camp. Uh, because of these conflicts continuing, the district attorney calls for a complete media blackout on the investigation. Now, this district attorney is a piece of work anyway. Oh, yeah. Big piece of work. <laughs> Uh, forensics comes out and says that only one of the three fingerprints that they found were any good. Mm-hmm. But they have a fingerprint. They got a fingerprint. Supposedly. They also have the shoe print. They also found a, a long black piece of hair under the tape on one of the girls. And they found semen. Telling you it was Richard Ramirez. So pretty quickly, the officials... Uh, whoever the officials are, disclose that they know that the photographs were hearts. He had developed them while in prison, like they had records of it and everything. Yeah. This is when the photographs were what really launched the main full-scale search. We're focusing on Hart and nobody else, and we're going after him. Yes. 200 members of law enforcement and 400 volunteers surrounded a four-mile area around the camp. Volunteers coming from Oklahoma, some of them were armed, <laughs> doing a little bit of drinking, doing a little bit of smoking, and ended up getting arrested. <laughs> they left that out of the documentary that Johnny Cash narrated. <laughs> <laughs> the American Indian Movement, AIM, mm-hmm. came in at this point to kind of keep an eye on things whenever this giant law posse was formed. By two days, two days later, most of the 200 law enforcement officers left. What was the point? (laughs) What was the point? Y'all care so much. (laughs) Uh, The FBI Mm -hmm. then brings in 40 agents of their own to assist in the investigation. It's a pretty good turnout for, you know, little bitty old Oklahoma. Yeah. 40 agents? And as we know, whenever the FBI arrives... It's now their scene, their investigation. I really feel like it's Texarkana all over again. It's like... You see the similarities? I know. And see how things don't get handled right when you got too many cooks in the kitchen? Now Hart's mother gets involved. Ooh, I didn't hear about this. LMA Buckskin. Spill the tea, Matt. She, she tried to, uh, I believe, go to the press... Started throwing a fit saying that Sheriff Weaver was just trying to implicate her son and had planted the photos. Her poor baby. And that the sheriff had been harassing her. Apparently, Hart was sheriff's number one target for escaping his jail. Saying that he planted photos Mm -hmm. and all this. Those are some pretty big implications. And it was also Hart's mother who went to the medicine man that we find out was helping her son. Uh-huh. Which there's a whole crazy secret society connection there. Interesting. That's how that connection was made. I was wondering. To denounce the mother's claims, the FBI now says, well, we've got proof to connect Hart to these murders. July 1st. 1977, 
Law enforcement leaves Camp Scott, claiming that all the evidence has been gathered. They don't need to be there anymore. I don't know. Nobody's arrested. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't just leave and abandon the crime scene yet. You know. And, like, the terrain and everything, you would just think that, was this an FBI call? You'd think you'd leave someone there just in case the perp comes back to relive it or... I'm just saying. Funny you should mention that. A few days later, a man matching Hart's description is seen in the search area. Seriously. That they had just abandoned. The tracking dogs were immediately brought in. But as soon as they picked up his scent, they mysteriously lost it. Hmm. Weird. Uh, at this point, the Oklahoma Medical Examiner releases the autopsies of the three young girls. The OSBI director, Jeff Laird, holds a press conference and announces that no fingerprints were found on the girls, as had previously been claimed. Mm-hmm. Quote, what was thought to be fingerprints are not fingerprints. And he said nothing else about it. The fingerprint was found on the lens of the flashlight, right? Mm-hmm. The one good one. Yes. Okay. But previously it had been stated that they found fingerprints on the bodies of the three girls. You know, I can't criticize them without being there, but I just really feel like they just didn't do quite a good as job dusting as they could have because you're telling me you you took that flashlight apart. You found the newspaper clipping and the batteries. None of that had fingerprints on it. You found eyeglasses, an eyeglass case, and there's blood everywhere. Yeah. They, they talk about how they tried to clean up the blood. None of that. N- none of that. Sleeping bags, none of that. All this violent crime taking place, the way that those poor girls were murdered. Nothing. You'd think that it would just be open and shut case. Apparently not. Another quote of Laird's that stood out from this press conference. (laughs) I would not say with certainty that Hart is guilty because I would not say with certainty that any person who has not yet been tried were guilty. But we do have a great deal of evidence in this case that points to his guilt. All of this seems like... Posturing? Posturing. Like, we're not going to say he's guilty, but basically we think he's guilty. But we can't actually say that. It's just, really? While we spend all this time focusing on this guy, we're going to tell you that we know it's this guy. But we can't tell you that we know <laughs> but we it's can't this guy. tell you that we know it's this guy. I feel like I'm I'm kind of depressed now that it's the year 2021, and the, I you I, I literally hear that same press conference on news today. Yeah. Oh, and also the agencies battling, and um, also the media that will come to find out later. The <laughs> media slants the views against they should be slanted against the perp. However, it is not, that is not the case. And we still see that today. It's like nothing has changed. Yeah. It's very depressing. And the media running with anything they can to get the most views on their newspaper. No matter who they hurt. Yeah. Yes. And at the heart of this, an eight, a nine, and a ten-year-old little girls Mm -hmm. at camp. Have been murdered. Have been murdered and raped. And their families are having to watch even this circus, this media circus. Even the rapes of these girls was 
conflicting depending on who was talking to the mm -hmm. press at the time. And they eventually just started using the word molested instead of rape. They did. In the headlines, it said, Girl Scouts molested and slain. Yeah. And then that farmer, I think it was the farmer, it was one of the people that had been interviewed and passed the lie detector. It was the farmer. He yeah. passed a lie detector test. Right. They put it in the paper under Girl Scout Slayer. They had his picture and they mm -hmm. put in there that he passed the lie detector test and he wasn't in there. But if you pick up that paper, all you see is Slayer in his face. Yeah, and then continued the story in the back of the newspaper. So he was getting like death threats and yeah. stuff and yeah. almost had a heart attack. Yeah. I think he did have a heart attack. I know he went to the hospital, but I don't know if he had the heart attack or got clipped. It mean, doesn't matter. They did His not life was ruined were. while this investigation yeah. was going on. And one of the medical examiners, I believe it was a medical examiner, even came forth and said that they weren't raped. Like, what? It was like they were trying to hide that information. It was like you had multiple factions mm -hmm. trying to create their own narrative to the public. Which is awful. Yeah. I mean, the victims deserve the justice, at least of the truth. You know, so one of the documentaries that I watched, um, the older one, the detective, the main detective on the case, the one that dealt with the bodies especially, he retells his account. And he said the bodies were at the ME's office. And he said he couldn't get over, first of all, how small the bodies were in those sleeping bags. He said it looked like a pillow at the bottom of that sleeping bag. And he said the last little girl, Lori, the little blonde-headed girl, he said she looked like an angel. She looked like she was just sleeping. And he, he cries all through this retelling. And he said, I had hope that she was just asleep and she would wake up. He said, and then the Emmy unzipped the blanket and pulled her out of the sleeping bag. He said, and at that point I knew she was dead, he said, but I couldn't find any injury on her. And he was also hoping at this time, because he knew the first girl had been sexually assaulted and the second girl, he said, I was hoping that this one escaped it. He said, but the panties were twisted and pulled sideways, askewed. And um, he said that, you know, and then there was a flashlight in the bottom of the sleeping bag that had been under her legs. So she had been in her sleeping bag with a flashlight in case she got scared. And that was still in the sleeping bag. I can't imagine. It was it was rough. I don't want to imagine. The detective, I mean, he was barely able to speak through all that. And that was however many years ago from that interview. And it, you know, it's... So you think about the reason I, I tell all these gruesome details is because this is what the media is skating over and not releasing and you know yes the victims didn't need to be thought of in that way but people because the media did not focus on the gory details and they glossed over oh it was a molester they they didn't really tell what happened to those girls and so what ends up happening is they weren't supporting the right side as we find out later so now we're at the end of july July 29th, there's a private security team that's been hired to watch over the camp. All the law enforcement have left the area. Obviously, people 
with their morbid curiosity are going to the camp and all this and they're trying to keep an eye on everything you got this security team that's there and they see a person in the woods they go to investigate the person disappeared they can't find them they come back and they find a plastic bag sitting on the steps of the camp director's house inside that bag was a pair of denise milner's shoes and socks soaking wet that i mean it was all confirmed by her parents like they didn't know where the missing shoes and socks were you know her name was written on the inside of the shoes and socks you know because she's just a little girl Mm -hmm. the bag wasn't an evidence bag they don't know who put it there, why the stuff was wet, and that's all that's mentioned about it. <laughs> now, remember previously, the dogs led them to a pond, mm-hmm. and they didn't find anything. And they dragged those ponds thinking they were going to find something, something, but they didn't find anything. Are these souvenirs yeah. that were taken and then returned? I mean, they were left. The, the security team was using the camp director's cabin or whatever at the time and people were going in and out of there all the time and they were left right on the steps making sure that somebody would find them was it uh, i even thought maybe they keep mentioning seeing people in the woods seeing somebody in the woods Mm -hmm. maybe there was a person living in the woods out there and that found them and didn't want to be involved or seen as a suspect and just wanted to return them maybe so but why are they what I don't know. I mean, the creek's nearby there. I believe Snake Creek runs right through there. Oh, so he chunked them on the way out from... Yeah, I I, I don't know. Maybe. Perhaps. Allegedly. It's just... We'll never know. That's one kind of the the weird things. That is weird. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. August 3rd, Governor David Boren prints a front page plea in the Tulsa world for Hart to turn himself in, uh, promising him security and a fair trial. That's all I got to say about Yeah. So at this point, they're begging and putting out a front page plea from the governor for Hart to please turn himself in. That tells me they don't have anything. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything at that point. And then offering this guy security and a fair trial. I mean, like, yes, of course, the Constitution does that. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, they're just doing anything. Yeah. Over a month later. September 22nd, uh, families of Milner and the farmers file a $3 million civil suit against Magic Empire Girl Scout Council for the wrongful deaths of their daughters. Neglect, negligence, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, the counselor's not getting up and checking on them. Um, I think even in the lawsuit it was mentioned how they... I would say how they handled notifying the the families, but they didn't handle it at all. Mm-mm. The families didn't know until they saw it on the news that their daughters had been raped and murdered. We're now in October. October 1st. This happened the previous summer. In July, awards had totaled $15,000 for information to Hart, his apprehension, whatever. Now a group of people calling themselves Drug Awareness Incorporated, just a group of private citizens that wanted to be anonymous out of Pryor, Oklahoma, offer an additional $5,000. 
It's only funny because when you think of a corporation, you just don't think of prior. Oklahoma. Yeah, incorporated. <laughs> Drug awareness incorporated. <laughs> Is it really incorporated? Did you really go through all that? It's also kind of weird because the bulk of the major reward came out of these two guys in Florida who started this campaign for a reward drive, basically, urging, like, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts to, like, donate money to this reward fund. I thought that was really kind of strange, but good for them. Yeah. If they had those credit card readers that the Girl Scouts today have, whew, they would have yeah, paid for that. sling some cookies, you know? <laughs> you know. Uh, October 10th, Weaver tells the press that he is certain Hart is still in the area and will be apprehended, saying, we'll stay with it until we do catch him. It's investigate day and night. Strong words, Sheriff <laughs> Pete. December 30th, we're now late winter, mm -hmm. headed into the new year. Agencies report a combined cost of $138,000 has been sent in the man spent in the manhunt. And that doesn't include the cost of the National Guard in Mays County. Now the agencies are talking about how much money we've spent mm -hmm. putting a price tag on things. That shows they got... The governor, spot. David Boren, came out and said, well, price was never an issue. We don't care. Like, you know, he had to respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, but you still have this pissing contest going on between the agencies. Well, you left us out of the figure, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it just says, it speaks to, they don't got diddly squat. So they're like, no, look, we've spent all this money. We're still looking. So January 28th, 1978, the FBI releases composite sketches of Hart, along with known aliases he uses. And the sketches show him with longer hair and wearing glasses. Now, what's interesting about that, to me, is whenever you look at the sketches, they are identical identical to what he looked like when he was arrested, including the detail features of the eyeglasses. Hmm. Somebody had laid eyes on the guy. Yeah. Somebody had a photograph or something at that point mm -hmm. when they released those sketches. Something was going on. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, same haircut, same everything. It, it looked like they sat there and sketched him. Uh, April 6th. 1978, at 4.15 p.m., a team of OSBI agents raid a remote home in Cherokee County near Bunch, Oklahoma. The home belongs to a man named Sam Pigeon and sits about 45 miles from Camp Scott. Hart is taken into custody without incident and immediately transported to McAllister. McAllister would be the biggest, baddest prison in the state of Oklahoma. Not only did they take him to McAllister, but for... Safety precautions to keep anybody from killing him or hurting him before the trial. They put him on death row. He was locked up on death row just being held there. Now, they say he was taken into custody without incident. What actually happened was he tried to run out the back door. But there was OSBI agents standing there with shotguns. And he didn't make it very far. So, the account that I saw, they walked up. The dude had a shotgun. He had one chambered. He was ready. Yeah. He said, I had the safety off. They were ready to kill this guy. Yeah. So, um, old dude Hart sticks his head out the door. He's bent over. He's like stooped over. He sticks his head out the door. 
And the guy said, hey, you need, you know, you're, you need to come out, blah, 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 blah. It's then that he shuts the door, tries to run out the back. Now, Sam Pigeon, they get a hold of him first, and they said something along the lines of, like, I think he tried to run. And they got a hold of him, and they said, do you want to die today? And he stopped and put his hands up and let him catch him. It's kind of the story that. Did they you told. see any pictures of where they were living? Yeah, I saw a picture. It was like a little one-room shed. Yeah, cabin. it was like a hunting cabin out yeah. in the middle of freaking nowhere. Yeah. How? I mean, how? we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, how? You know, like mm-hmm. how would you find that place? Because keep in mind, at this point, yes, he's being arrested. Yes, he's the number one suspect. But like you were saying. People were on his side. The community was on his side, especially fellow Native Americans were helping him stay hidden. The whole atmosphere of people thinking that he was wrongfully accused, they brought race into it hard. Mm -hmm. They brought it in hard. Like, this is all because the sheriff is such and such and he's against him. They did tell about the takedown and they said that They figured out where he was, and they got there, and they were running through the woods, and this adrenaline hit, and there's thorns and bushes ripping at their clothes, and they made this, like, big production out of it, and ran up and crept up on the house and, you know, come out with your hands up, that kind of thing. Then there's more when they take him down and stuff, but basically, like, he just kind of opened the door and stuck his head out, like, oh, y'all here for me? (laughs) Because of how... Hart was becoming like this folkloric hero or whatever. Uh, There was a photograph taken at the time of the arrest where they're arresting OSB agents are standing there in a line. They've got him in handcuffs. Yes. And people threw a fit about it. I did see that. Even one of the jurors later on said it was like they were posing with their trophy. And in the... the, um lead detective or arresting officer the one with the shotgun Mm -hmm. he in the picture gene's looking at him it's like he said something to him and gene's kind of looking over at him and the detective is looking right at him smiling and it does it looks just like a good old boy hunting buddy yeah this is the grizzly we just took down yeah i mean it it, yeah it was a good day they took down a, a murderer or whatever but the photo they are all lined up yeah and gene's in you know, he's got his hands behind his back, and it was, it was a little weird to me. That was a little weird. Yeah. And it's funny because that photo, I think, is in color, mm-hmm. but the photo of the cabin is in, like, yeah. like sepia tone, black and white. It was also interesting that several of the agents were wearing, like, jeans with, like, white shirts. Yeah. Yeah. This guy was wearing, like, a polo. He looked like he was at the country club. Yeah. And I mean, then not what here. you would wear to apprehend a criminal. A white right. shirt giving you away instantly. Yeah. But then, one of the guys looked like a white guy to me. Mm-hmm. He had kind of a longer haircut and a mustache. He was wearing a long sleeve black shirt and camo pants. And I bet they had him positioned somewhere mm-hmm. with a rifle. Yeah. And he was told, you know, hey, if Hart runs, end it. And that's the thing that one of them said. He said, safety was off. And he said, and it went across my mind, take this guy out. Please make a move, Gene, please, because I want to blow your head off. Yeah. But he said, 
no, because I need you to testify. I bet he wishes he had pulled the trigger later. So at the time of the arrest, Hart was wearing women's eyeglasses. Yep. Just like the ones that he was wearing in the sketches. And just like had been described, there was eyeglasses stolen from some of the female counselors. They found eyeglasses. He had tried on the eyeglasses of the women he had raped previously. Mm-hmm. It seems like he has something with women's eyeglasses as a souvenir. Maybe he just, I don't know why it's always women's eyeglasses. Maybe they fit his face better. Maybe so. <laughs> so at this point in time is whenever I got disgusted. Oh, oh, this is when you got disgusted. Well, I'm just saying during my research. You got more in disgusted with the investigation? The trial. Ah, yes, the trial. What a farce. I'm going to just go ahead and spoil it because everybody listening to this should already know that this is still an unresolved case. Mm-hmm. Hart was acquitted. And since Hart was acquitted, there's no transcript of the trial. That's part of the deal. If you're acquitted, it all goes away. So the only thing that we have to go on... This is news to me. ...is newspaper articles and like... This is unconstitutional. Yeah. I'm going to speak to my governor, senator, president. Couldn't you just put that like, here's the transcript, by the way, he was acquitted? Yeah. (laughs) Or put it at the top. Yeah. Not actually guilty, but here read this. Yeah. Um, because I really wanted to get the information direct from the court documents yes. as much as possible. Yes. And I found like a few things because there was a preliminary hearing. And because Oklahoma court systems are so free with their documents, yeah. you can look them up as opposed to other states, yeah. as we found in our research for this show. So I know this is a common thing. I've, I've ran across this before in other cases. But right out the gate, the most gruesome photos of the crime were never shown in trial because they didn't want to have an emotional impact on the jurors in making their decision. Yes, the poor things. Shouldn't they know? Shouldn't the jurors be allowed to see those photos so they know what exactly we're talking about here? You would think. You have uh, conflicting reports from the pathologist on whether the girls had been actually raped or just molested. This is all in the trial The state claimed semen and hair samples found on the victims were, quote, similar to samples taken from Hart. You don't want similar to be used in that situation. So what I saw was they had Hart do a a semen um, donation, collection, I don't know, whatever. And he had had a vasectomy. Now his semen was irregular Mm -hmm. and in that time period what that meant was he's not like every other joe schmo out there he has weird semen and the semen found inside the girls so that should tell you right there that should tell you right there that that they were sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. because semen inside the girls hello it matched the hair samples again they said it matched now the defense came along and they said well, OSBI labs, blah, 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 talk crap about them and said they match well enough. Mm-hmm. So basically what the defense did is their game plan in their playbook was 
reasonable doubt. Right. Created doubt. That's all they have to do. That's all they had to do, and they succeeded. Now, not only did they do it with that, they had a janitor that used to work at the sheriff's department come along and testify that he had seen those same photos that were supposedly jeans in the sheriff's desk drawer. And so obviously they were planted. So they're saying the shoe print didn't match jean because it was size nine and a half. Now that's some reports. Right. The fingerprint found on the flashlight lens was not a match to jean. Or I think it was that it, they couldn't get a good enough. It wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't match it to him. The semen found inside the girls was a match, but the defense said... Well, they put some scientists on the stand Yeah, and, they and said, said, can you 100% say with right. certainty that, that... And they were like, well, no. Yep. <laughs> we can't, but we can, but it doesn't matter. So we had reasonable doubt. They said all this stuff. Now, while all that's going on, we have stuff going on outside the courtroom. We have... The whole town that this is happening in is pro-Gene. They seem to have forgotten that he raped and sodomized these women before and tried to kill them. They seem to have forgotten all that. They are saying that he's a hero. They have donation jars set up at all the restaurants collecting for Gene's defense. Now, the family of these victims, they are there at the trial. And they said that when they go in the courtroom or any of the restaurants, they feel like they're on trial. They feel like they're the villains because everybody just thinks this man is a hero. And so at one point, Tulsa newspapers, Tulsa media comes along and they're going to uh, do a press conference with Gene. So they send him the questions ahead of time. Gene is allowed to pick which ones he wants to answer and they break in to the news coverage of various Tulsa channels and have this press conference with him. And he starts out by saying, now I'm, I am not no hero, all unsung hero. And, uh, the, the parents of the girls, this is just a devastating blow to them. Blow after blow after blow. And then comes the verdict and the verdict was, they went away and came right back and they were like, "Hmm, not guilty. Like, are you kidding? So that's happening. Not to mention the defense attorney. No, not the defense. I'm sorry. The prosecution. He there was a blackboard over there, chalk blackboard, and it had been covered with a sheet. He went over there to use the blackboard during his presentation, lifts the sheet and someone had written framed on the blackboard. And so he erased it and then, you know, did whatever he was going to do on it. But he's but the jury saw it. And that's not including our illustrious district attorney, which I'll let you tell about that because yeah, I get that, upset. <laughs> so the other side is screwing the pooch too. <laughs> the defense attorney for Hart was trying to get copies of the investigative reports, which he's allowed to have. They're supposed to, the prosecution is supposed to turn over everything they have to the defense so they can build their case. Mm-hmm. Wise, the district attorney wasn't allowing that to happen. Wasn't letting the defense have the reports. Now, I'm not on the defense's side. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, but that causes problems right there. So what does this do? Well, it makes the defense attorney start investigating, like, 
what's going on, you know, and making a big stink. And now we've got, well, if he's not being framed, then why aren't they letting me have these reports and everything? Well, he uncovers something. The district attorney, Sid Wise, had given copies of the reports to Ronald Grimsley for a potential book deal and denied any interest in the book. No, yeah, that guy's writing a book. I don't have anything to do with it. Well, Isaacs was able to produce a contract where Wise was going to receive 75% of the book profits. So at that point, the district attorney, who's been handling this case since day one, has to withdraw himself from the prosecution and is replaced with S.M. Fallis of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Fallis? I'm going to say Fallis, F-A-L-L-I-S. Fallis? But in this sense, I think Fallis is appropriate. Why do we have such, just a side note, <laughs> why do we have such weird attorney names in this town? Because you know the other one that's a pretty big one here. Harry K-O-C-H. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I have been told is Koch, but that is not how <laughs> it comes across. I think SM went by Buddy, if I remember right. Um, but either way, you know, now you're just thrown on the biggest case going on in the nation. Mm -hmm. Here you go. I have to withdraw myself because I was trying to profit off of secret information. So they actually found uh, a piece of evidence that goes along with that, that he was going to give some of the proceeds to Gene and it had his phone number on it. <laughs> Sam or Sid Wise. <laughs> Sid Wise Gamgee. <laughs> so one of the main things that the prosecution was trying to do was connect Hart to this cave, that he lived in this cave. Um, I believe even on the inside of the cave walls, it was like the killer was here with like a date. Yeah. Items connected to the murders were found mm -hmm. at the cave. Mm -hmm. So they felt that if we can prove that he was living in the cave, then we can prove his connection. Well, there were also the items found at the house. Right. So there were, there was a little corncob pipe toy mm -hmm. and a little blue mirror that were found at that cabin. Right. But they said they were trying to make a case that those were planted by the sheriff as well. Right. Apparently, none of the stuff, that the items from the cave that were actually linked with the crime scene that the prosecution presented had Hart's fingerprints on them. They couldn't get anything with his fingerprints on them for some reason. They had a 16-year-old boy, Darren Creekmore, who claimed that he had visited Hart at the cave shortly after the killings. But once he got on the stand, he said he lied about the visits because he was just trying to claim the reward money for giving information as to Hart's whereabouts. Dear Lord. Then we have another key witness, fellow inmate Jimmy Don Bunch, who was expected to testify on behalf of the defense that he had been offered parole to implicate Hart in the killings. So here we have the defense once again using the argument that this is all a big setup and that Hart's innocent. Uh, Bunch even signed a statement to the effect, but here we go. Once he got on the stand... Bunch renounced the signed statement and claimed Hart had told him he didn't know if he had committed the murders or not because he had, quote, 
been smoking reefer and drinking wine for three days. <laughs> and that I woke up in a cave and I had blood all over me. Oh, good Lord. Now, none of that sounds legit. So here, like, both sides, their two, like, main witnesses just get on the stand and completely, like, go against everything. This case had no chance. So then you have Sam Pigeon, the man Hart was staying with. Oh, Sammy. And the corncob pipe and the hand mirror. And Pigeon saying, uh, I've never seen those before the whole time that Hart's been here. You have the prosecution saying that Pigeon had said they must be Hart's because they're not mine. But again, here's evidence tying him to it. But they can't prove that the evidence is his or wasn't planted. I didn't know that in a trial you had to prove evidence isn't planted. But apparently in this one you do. Uh, the jurors reviewed the case for four hours before deciding to sleep on the decision, then huddled for 40 minutes before delivering their decision of not guilty. Um, a juror who was granted anonymity said that all 12 jurors were in agreement after only five minutes of deliberation, but wanted to be absolutely certain. So they had their minds made up. Yeah, they did this. I mean, first thing in the morning. So the... Um Lori Farmer's parents, the youngest girl of eight, she they showed up and they were there. But Heather Gousset's parents, they hadn't even made it yet. They were parking the car. And how they found out is they heard a bunch of ruckus in the courthouse, gleeful, joyful mm -hmm. shouting, and somebody ran by and said, he's not guilty, he's not guilty. And that's how they found out that their daughter's murderer had been acquitted. What an awful feeling. Yeah. Devastating. And so they were pulled into the judge's chambers, and he told them, unfortunately, our justice system, sometimes murderers go free. Sometimes. Sometimes. In Mays County. And they were escorted out uh, by security and uh, allowed to go home. At that point, um, they were given their daughter's belongings, and it had been two years. Uh, they were given their daughter's belongings, and they were just handed a bag with their stuff in it and uh, sent on their way. At that point, the farmers, you know, they had, they they left the courthouse. They went by the cemetery by her grave, and uh, then she went to the house and went into her daughter's room and unpacked the bag that they had given her, and it was Lori's little shirt. And her little shoes and her sleeping bag that her grandparents had bought for her to go camping with. And she said that day, getting that verdict, that day was worse than the day she found out that she'd been murdered. So the thing about this, he was found not guilty of these crimes. However, he was still wanted. Yeah. He still had over 300 years of time to serve. Yeah, so he didn't get to just, like... He didn't get out. Yeah, he didn't walk away, but he was just not charged for those crimes. So, while he was serving these sentences of 305 years for rape, kidnapping, and burglary, after working out and going for a jog at his current prison facility, he died from a massive heart attack at the age of 35 
and was described as an athletic man with no pre-existing heart condition or problems Mm -hmm. or anything. So that was another thing that was mentioned. Somebody said this to one of the family members because they didn't realize that it was a family member of the murder victim. Mm -hmm. They were waxing poetic about his athletic skills and build and all of that and they said you know after this i I wouldn't be surprised if the dallas cowboys signed him after this he's so great well he was a big football hero so they were saying in this Grove, where he grew up to the murder victims family well sure why not so there was a few other suspects along the way but only one of those suspects really stood out to me and that was mr william stevens Mrs. Dean Boyd, a waitress in Shoto, identified William Stevens as having been in the restaurant 15 miles from the camp between 5 and 6 a.m. on June 13, 1977. Boyd said Stevens acted very nervous and had blood on his boots, was complaining about car trouble, and kept looking at his boots. She called the sheriff's office, and a deputy came out, but Stevens had already left by that time. The flashlight found at the scene was identified by a woman and her two sons as one they had loaned to Stevens and a friend, Dwayne Peters, a few weeks before the killings. One of the sons said Stevens had come to their Mulgee home the day the bodies were found and complained about car trouble. The son said he had claw marks on his arms and neck. He had red stains on his boots. He was jittery. He tried to wash them off in our bathroom. Stevens was convicted of rape in Kansas. I believe it was a fellow inmate, or maybe it was Dwayne Peters that was talked to, yeah. who said, yes, Stevens told me all about this. I didn't believe him until I saw him beat up, rape, and kill somebody else or a something. Girl, yeah. yeah. But he describes all these things. Yeah. And then Stevens doesn't know anything about Camp Scott, what Camp Scott is. None of the story lines up. He denies all of it. Uh, His friend said he had been working for like an oil drilling company or something, a drilling rig or something nearby Camp Scott. Mm -hmm. So basically the guy saying that Stevens told me the story of doing it Mm -hmm. and has details. Stevens denies all of it, but the key is the flashlight. The guy even described putting tape over the end of the flashlight and leaving a hole for just a small amount of light to come through. And apparently Stevens was in Vietnam or something and had scouted the camp military style. Mm -hmm. But the flashlight was the wrong kind of flashlight. Mm -hmm. The flashlight that the guy Stevens, the guy said that Stevens had was like, you know, your old classic metal flashlight. But the flashlight that was actually found was a red plastic lantern style flashlight. So just the whole story right there gets discredited. I mean, so they said, Dwayne Peter said that Stevens had told had told him that he, he claimed to have killed the girls while having war game hallucinations. That's what he told Peters. Now, later on, Stevens, um, he had always maintained that he was working in Seminole the day that the girls were murdered at Camp Scott. And Stevens' employers even confirmed his story with a canceled paycheck and a time card. And Seminole is 
in the area of Old Mulgee way more mm -hmm. than Camp Scott is. I mean, right. Camp Scott's nowhere near Old Mulgee. Right. But Seminole isn't that far away. Yeah. And Stevens wasn't the only guy that, you know, mm -hmm. claimed to have done this. Another guy tried to take credit for it and ended up dying in prison. But something interesting, and I'm not going to say their names. While I was doing research, I ended up on a website. Um, I believe it was for a different podcast. But in the comments section, there were numerous people, at least four different people, having a conversation about they know who the killer is and that it's not Hart. And they gave the person's name and everything and said, like, I dated this guy's cousin. I knew this family. They're from Locust Grove. They own a house. They're like the bad criminal family that's all weird and stuff of Locust Grove. And, like, you had different people all claiming, like, yeah, this is the guy that did it. We know he he's the one that did it. It was, he, it was him and this other guy. That's vaguely terrifying. Yeah, and they're, like, saying his name on the Internet and everything. <laughs> I mean, it's there. Anybody can find it. Yeah. Um, I would assume law enforcement has is aware of this and has looked into that. You know what they say about assuming. Well, okay, so... Especially with Mays County, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So, we're obviously, Hart's dead. And while the prosecution wasn't able to win the case because the defense was able to somehow sway the juror the jury mm -hmm. into finding reasonable doubt. I mean, I think you and I both agree Hart's guilty. Mm -hmm. But everything keeps going back to there was more than one person involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Hart's dead. We can't ask him. Uh, even, even Stevens. Stevens was stabbed to death in his cell. So even he's dead. So it's like, if he was the partner, we'll never know. But honestly, to me, the way all that went down, I, I truly do believe there was a second person. Mm -hmm. Not that three little girls would be hard to subdue, but it might be kind of hard to keep them all quiet. All three? And the different shoe prints, the fingerprint, just kind of how all that went down. And honestly... And the crime scene. To me, did they really investigate Sam Pigeon? Sid Pigeon. Sam. Sam. Sam Pigeon. I, I, there's a lot of Sams and Sids in this story. Sam's an old Native American man. Yes. So that was Sid. a, a I know friend a of the family. And um, I mean, I think he almost got in trouble for harboring a fugitive. Maybe he did serve some time. I, I, I don't remember if he did or not. But something I found interesting was in they've tried to do DNA tests as technology improves and everything later on. And in a 2002 test, I think it was, they found um, traces of a female that did not match the three girls. And I believe it was... Lori Farmer's family or mother who said that she had always felt a woman was involved in this. Hmm. Which is 
kind of weird and really scary, if that is true. It's uh, definitely unsettling when a woman's involved in a child harm I mean, I'd like to say it's not possible, but we know that it is. Yeah. It, it's happened. It's actually, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So, two people, three people, one person, it's all been left unresolved. And then you have the weird stuff. But we'll talk about that next time on Planet Fear. Be sure to check out our website, planetfearpodcast.com, for links to our social media, contact information, and our latest episodes. 